Hey, welcome to the Afikr podcast. My name is Mikey Mahenna. Today on the series, we have another episode of Matbakh, our series all about food and drink of and from the Arab world. Our special guest is Reem Qasis, who is a Palestinian cookbook author. This episode is hosted by Salma Siri. I hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to subscribe if you don't already do so. Thanks so much. Reem Qasis, welcome. I'm so happy to be starting a conversation with you. Um, Reem is a Palestinian writer whose work focuses on the intersection of food and culture in the region, as well as history and politics. Uh, you can find some of her amazing writer, writings in the Wall Street Journal, in the Washington Post, and the New York Times. And of course, her debut cookbook, The Palestinian Table, that was published in 2017, it won the Guild of Food Writers Award and Gourmand World Cookbook Award, and it was nominated for a James Beard Award. Um, and was also shortlisted for the Andre Simon Award and the Edward Stanford Award, uh, mashallah, and was picked as one of NPR's best books of 2017. And he has a second cookbook, which was published in 2021, uh, The Arabesque Table. Um, the Arabesque Table, I'd love to talk about it, but I'd love to hear it from you uh, even more. So um, Reem, take it away. So the Arabesque, I mean, I come from a very different background, right? I'm not from the food world. And I always thought the Palestinian Table was just this one-off thing. You know, I'll do it and then I'd go back to my real life. But it was funny because after that book came out and I really fell very deep into the world of food and I started researching things and learning about the history of our cuisine, I started to see there were so many misconceptions about it, you know, in part about the history of the food, its origins. Um, and I really wanted to write a book that showed what a modern Arabic table might look like, while at the same time not discounting the history that got us to this point. Because you end up a lot of times, you know, I look at the way we eat at home today, and it's very different from the way my grandmother might have eaten with her kids in her house. But to understand why we have the dishes we have today and how they've evolved, to do that with integrity, you really need to go back in history and understand the origins of these foods. Mm -hmm. And I guess as a Palestinian, for me, this was also very important because it touches on the issue of culinary appropriation, right? You, know, you have a lot of dishes being marketed abroad as one thing or other when they're not. And if you're armed with the history, then you have a much better chance of changing the conversation because you're no longer just projecting something that's emotional. You're actually bringing history and facts to the table. And that's what the arabesque table really tried to do. So if you look at it, you know, there's a bunch of recipes in there that aren't really traditional, that might look like fusion dishes to many people, but fusion is actually as old as cuisine itself. And if you think back to the spice routes and the trade routes in which, you know, the Islamic and the Arab empire were the biggest players in the field at the time, our cuisine has been evolving way back since the beginning, you know, from the spices that you're exposed to throughout trade, from different traditions and modes of preparing food to different ingredients, our food has always been evolving. And I think cookbooks play a very important role in documenting food in a very specific point in time, so that when people come later on and they want to understand the history in the past, then they have these manuals, if you will, with which to understand it better. Absolutely. No, I mean, history is something that I'm extremely passionate about. Food history specifically, it's mm -hmm. what I'm personally uh, studying and what I write about, what I, I do in my free time. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
And it's absolutely important because it also gives context wherever you are, wherever you're in life, you are to kind of understand um, why we do things the way we do, you know, mm-hmm. the way we do them. It's like we we know that this is how I cook or I eat or my neighbor eats and how we might be different or related, how my mother. But cooks. why? Exactly. Uh, why? And it kind of contextualizes everything for us. And through that, I'm sure um, it is bringing me to my next question is on working on the arabesque table. What were things that you were really you might have not perhaps knew before that kind of were eye opening for you and you realized? I mean, for me, for instance, I feel like going back to history, you you do touch on you did you touched on the, the connections that mm-hmm. we share. Um, and I'm curious to know how it was like for you. So look, there's a lot of things I learned that came as a bit of a surprise to me, and I'll get into some of the smaller points in a bit, but I think the biggest, biggest takeaway, let's say, you know, I don't want to say surprise because anecdotally I'd heard this a lot, but the biggest takeaway was just how important and influential Arab cuisine has been on the cuisine of the entire world. You know, there are so many dishes that you might eat in Europe today. It's something like panna cotta. And you think, well, this is an Italian dish. Yes, it is. But do you know who actually brought the very idea of thickening milk with starch to Europe during the Middle Ages? It was Arab traders. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so there were a lot of, you know, little anecdotes like that. And we're going to talk about kakil uts later, so I don't want to spoil it now. But the history of that was also very surprising to me. Um, Other things like rice, which we look at as such a staple in our cuisine, Palestinian cuisine today, it actually wasn't common until just a couple, a few decades ago, if you will. You know, we relied more on burgol, frike, you know, wheats ensuing great byproducts. Um, And yet today you look at what we consider our national dishes, something like ma'lube, it's rice-based. And so you start to see how dishes evolve and that, you know, it's hard to claim something as extremely authentic. But at the same time, that doesn't detract from its importance to your national identity. And I think it was very important for me to see that you're able to put those two things together. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's I mean, there's a lot to unpack just in your answer now. <laughs> I'll take it. I'll take it. I know. <laughs> Amazing. Um, I would love to just go back to the Palestinian table back in 2017. So I mm. it's, it's a lovely book that um, is extremely helpful for me as a ki- as um, in the kitchen, as a woman. You know, I, I love Palestinian food. Um, I see a lot of closeness to farm and land and the concept of land and freshness and nature and seasonality in it that is just really beautiful. But aside from the food and the recipes in it, um, the narrative, your personal narrative that came through uh, at the beginning, at the introduction, or even, you know, at the beginning of each section or, um, you know, each recipe or introduction to it, your own story behind it. um, There was a lot of memory in it. And I'm sure there are kind of, I mean, I'm a fourth generation migrant myself. um, So memory kind of, there's a lot of displacement sort of you know, in, in, in my lineage. Um, and I feel memory plays a huge role um, in whether, you know, my own personal story or point of view, but also in my research and the people I talk to. Um, 
And I felt that coming through a lot. And I kind of see there's your own Palestinian or your own narrative as a Palestinian, but also as a Palestinian in diaspora. Right. Um, And I'm curious to know your, um, maybe your take on how you think of if you were still in Palestine and you weren't in diaspora, how Mm. different would that be? That that role of memory uh, in telling your story. So to answer your question, I guess I need to explain to you why the book even came about to begin with, right? So I, like you mentioned, I had been living abroad for quite some time um, when I wrote The Palestinian Table, but what really precipitated it, I, you know, my background is in business, I was working as a consultant, and then I had my first daughter in London, where we were living at the time. And during maternity leave, I suddenly panicked, you know, there was a part of me that felt like I'm raising my kid away from her homeland, away from all the things that had given me a sense of meaning and rootedness growing up, because I grew up in Jerusalem. And I wanted to basically preserve that for her, give her a piece of home, regardless of where she would be in the world. And I think something that made that feel more urgent was seeing a lot of these restaurants popping up in London at the time, you know, claiming this is Israeli cuisine and, you know, selling things as Middle Eastern that were nowhere even remotely as good or accurately done as they would be locally. And so I wanted her to kind of know what that was. And when I started working on the book, you know, I was compiling these recipes and stories for my family. I think I took a step back at one point and looked at it and I said, well, okay, these are my family's recipes and stories and our memories and whatnot. But if you take them together collectively as a whole, they could be the story of any Palestinian family. And those are the stories that you don't often hear. I mean, Selma, I'm sure you're aware, like, you know, you hear about the politics, you hear about the the war, the oppression, all these things, but you don't hear about us often as people, as humans. Mm -hmm. And we all know the risk of what happens when we're dehumanized. And I thought that, well, having a book that just simply tells about our food and our history, and like you mentioned, our memories and our stories and all these things, it does help show a different side to us. And that's why I ended up writing the Palestinian table. But that's also to answer your question, why it's so rooted in memories and stories, because it started out as a personal project. But then I also realized those were the very stories that people don't often get to know. Now, had I been living back home, would I have even thought to do this book? Probably not. Mm -hmm. I probably wouldn't have felt that sense of urgency at, you know, there was a Palestinian um, poet who at one point, the name escapes me, but he said something. He said, we became Palestinians the day we were severed from our country. And it's not that you're not Palestinian when you live in Palestine, but you don't think of it as my, you know, you're there. And I write this in the book, you know, growing up, there was the food we ate at home at my grandmother's houses. And it was our food, but I didn't think of it. This is Palestinian because I didn't feel it was threatened. I didn't feel it being taken away from me. And then when you're abroad, suddenly you do realize that there is this metaphorical and real threat to your food, you know, it's you're far away from it. You don't have access to the same ingredients, to the same even kind of occasions in which you get to share these foods. And that's why it, I think the concept of memory and tradition comes across so much in this book out of probably nostalgia and, you know, heartache at being so away from my homeland. Yeah, I think, um, like you said, uh, you know, displacement has become perhaps part of the identity. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, with the Palestinian people. And um, I think memory definitely plays a big role 
especially when it comes to food. <laughs> it's something when you're away, it like you mentioned in the book, it, it ignites all these, um, you know, really close memories and, and, mm-hmm. and, 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 and moments and interactions and scents and smells from the, the zoo and, you know, people and laughter and all that. Um, I, you know, I'm curious about something that is perhaps quite related. Like you mentioned in the, um, when you started the book, you, you wanted to humanize mm. um, Palestinians and humanize the Palestinian heritage um that were you know that that the Palestinian people is more than just the cause <laughs> um obviously um but because your audience you're writing who did you have in mind while you were writing the Palestinian table so initially like I told you I was thinking of it more on a personal level but then after that when I decided to broaden it and actually turn it into a cookbook there were a few people that I had in mind the people that I didn't have in mind were the Palestinians back home, mostly because they don't need my book. You know, they have their mothers and their aunts and they have their traditions and they still live these things. Although now in hindsight, I realize that actually it has been very useful to a lot of people back home. But I wanted it to be first and foremost for Palestinians in the diaspora, because for many of us, you know, whether we be first generation, second, third, or fourth, food is sometimes one of the only things we still have, right? Like I know fourth generation Palestinians and Lebanese and Syrians and Egyptians who don't speak a word of the language, who have never visited the country, but they can name every single dish on a table because that's what they eat at home. And so you realize food is one of those things that keeps people connected to their past. And I wanted them to have access to a book that helped them relive those flavors that they might have known either in their childhood or, you know, from previous generations. But then I also wanted the other side of this, the humanizing side was for the Western world. You know, they're the ones that we often see Palestinians like beseeching and saying, you know, where's the international community? Why aren't you standing with us? But for a lot of them, they don't see us as people, as mothers, as sisters, as cooks, as husbands, as whatnot. They see us just as these people who have this problem. You saw during Ukraine, oh, these brown people, the terrorists, et cetera. And it's, you want them to start seeing you on par with them. I'm someone who cooks. I'm someone who has a history, a culture, who has stories that you can relate to. So those were the two primary groups, I guess, that I was targeting, which explains also some of the reasons for, you know, the book is written in English, obviously not in Arabic. Um, you know, the there was an editorial decision to call all the recipes English names. I didn't like it, but, you know, I at least we put the Arabic words in the head notes for each recipe. Yeah, well, but was again, a, you know, and was uh, was uh, chicken and with sumac and onion, right? I know. I was like, dude, it's called imsakhan. Like, come on. They're like, well, we put imsakhan in the head note, but it's, yeah. Yeah. you know, you pick and choose your battles. That's what I realized when you write a cookbook, right? You know, there are certain things that you give and you take in return. But overall, I mean, I was yeah targeting a Palestinian, both Palestinians and non-Palestinians. Um, I didn't think it would be popular at all back home just because who needs a book in English to tell them how to cook when they know how to cook it. But I realized a lot of people do actually buy it locally in Jerusalem, which was a surprise to me. That's wonderful. Um, I, you know, in recent, uh, maybe the last two years I've been following your writing in the press um so you've you've published a couple of um you've written a couple of articles that touches on 
the Palestinian um, reality and your mm. personal narrative and perhaps linking to larger questions of, you know, the nationalization of cuisine or the identity. And um, perhaps that wasn't as present back in 2017 in the Palestinian mm. table in your book. So I'm curious, do you see that the appetite for um, food, but also for Palestinian culture or the Palestinian cause, has it changed? Do you see more awareness, perhaps more readiness to listen? Mm -hmm. So a couple of, (laughs) sorry, what was the last thing? Or to eat, to listen. Or or to eat, eat, yeah. (laughs) So there's definitely been a rise, both in the interest in, you know, Palestinian cuisine, but also in the Palestinian story, but in a lot of other marginalized people's stories. And we've seen that across the board in recent years. Um, But I think when the book, and you accurately perceive this, the book was not political by any stretch. There was not even the mention of the word Israel in it once. Mm -hmm. And that wasn't necessarily a conscious decision. I was just, my aim in writing it was to preserve and share our stories and to let the food and those stories speak for themselves. You know, I don't need to come and tell you, you know, the salad is not actually Israeli. No, I could just very simply tell you about it history and its position in our family and how it came to be and whatnot, then that should speak for itself. But like I said, I wasn't from this world. And the more I got immersed in it, I realized there are things that I assumed people would know that I realized actually people don't know. And just because I took it for granted, because I grew up around this information or around this research that others would know, someone needs to actually share that with others. And that's where the whole idea of writing more in the press came from. Um, it was a struggle, actually, because at the beginning, you know, the mainstream press, there are, you know, restrictions on what they do and don't want to publish. Um, And so I think it took quite a few stepping stones to get to the point where I am right now, where I am able to say, for the most part, what I want to say without it being censored, or at least totally censored. Um, But it's, you know, it was an uphill climb, I would say it's getting smoother, I don't know how long that will last. (laughs) <laughs> yeah but I do um, hope that we're witnessing a change at this point you know and yeah I mean no no matter what like you said um at the end of the day even if you're not saying that this is Palestinian and not Israeli <laughs> you know, this that by by explaining its history behind it um you're you are kind of um resisting in a way yeah um so you know, I've always said we each do it in our own field, right? Like I am working in the area of food. My form of resistance is in, you know, correcting the misinformation that's out there, sharing the history. Someone else who works in politics, they, you know, there's different avenues that you can take, but I guess we're each doing our bit where we can. Sure. Um, returning to the kitchen as <laughs> a woman after traveling, after education, you wrote in the Palestinian kitchen, and I'm going to um, quote that, if you don't mind. Yeah. Little did I know that my journey would take me back to the place where I started, to the kitchen as a changed person. So uh, a couple of months back, I was presenting um, uh, something in Doha, and I, was, I got asked this question. Uh, I was presenting something actually on domesticity and mm. the woman's role 
in Egypt back in the 50s, right? Mm -hmm. And then I got asked by uh, a young student who studies in a university there. She was like, um, how does that make you feel as a woman that you're doing that? You know, when right. you're talking about it, you're talking about, you know, the, the issue of domesticity and, you know, maybe putting restrictions and framing, right. you know, putting women in, in frames and you still perhaps are doing it yourself. Um, I would love to hear what you have uh, to say, because my response at the time was perhaps, you know, if I was a man, you wouldn't be asking me that question. <laughs> um, but I'd love to hear what you think. So, you know, the <laughs> earlier part of that quote and why I didn't want to end up in the kitchen was before I left, someone had you know, joked in front of my family saying something like, why are you going to bother sending her to university in the US? Don't you know, she's going to end up in the kitchen, like all Arab women do anyway. And, you know, it's a stereotype, an unfortunate one, but it's also based, unfortunately, in some semblance of reality, right? There's a lot of women, um, you, you know, the Arab world has the lowest uh, employment participation rate for women in the whole entire world. And a lot of women end up in the kitchen, um, or if not, then, you know, they're managing work while managing the kitchen as well. And for me, that was something that I really wanted to escape. So I had that same perception that domesticity and being at home and whatnot were these things that you want to stay away from. And I think one realization I've come to in recent years is that the kitchen can very much be a place of power as well. And the issue is not with domesticity. Um, you know, I think Selma, the issue is with how people perceive it, right? And I've written about this before where it's not about having equal rights and being able to do the same thing that a man can do. It's about being respected for the thing that a woman wants to do. You know, if I want to be a stay-at-home mother, if I want to work in the kitchen, that work should be equally respected and valued because caregiving is just, and we saw when COVID hit, just how integral caregiving was to our society. And we don't appreciate it as much as we should. So when it comes to everyone and domesticity, I think the issue becomes when it's done out of, you know, circumstance, not out of choice, when you're forced to be in the kitchen, that's where the crux of the issue is. But I think when you have the choice and you're able to say, I want to be here because I find a source of power in this place, I am able to, you know, whether it's right about it, I'm able to influence a future generation through it. Uh, you know, I'm able to educate people about it, then it's actually not at all wrong to be in a place of domesticity. I don't think being in, I know, and I've been in boardrooms, I've been at meetings with CEOs and presidents and all kinds of people. And I don't think that being in those places is, it might seem more glamorous, but I don't think it's any more important than being at home and cooking Absolutely. and caring for a future generation. Yeah. So. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, there's, yeah, there's nothing wrong with domesticity <laughs> when it has been enforced uh like you said without much choice or um empowerment given to um to women i suppose that is where the issue is um i am curious about um the reference you mentioned briefly about um you know grouping um or homogenizing cuisines or dishes or cultures under mm. a bigger generic generic umbrella of let's say Middle Eastern food right. or Arab food, quote unquote. Um, what do you think of that? The, I'm sure there's, you know, dangers in, in, in such a notion, but also um, advantages and 
I loved what you wrote about um, national cuisines is actually useful. Right. <laughs> article, right? Right. Yes. Uh, I'd love to hear uh, what you have to say about this. So, I mean, the issue with it's not so much about the generalization as it is about the terms that are used. Right. So Middle East, the issue with it that I had was it's a very Western centric term. Right. It's we are the Middle East relative to a British empire that sees India as farthest east and sees us in the middle. So it's vague. It's, you know, it's Eurocentric and it doesn't actually describe anything whatsoever. Calling it Arab cuisine, on the other hand, is fine. It's different because we are, you know, what connects the 22 countries from the Atlantic Ocean to the Arabian Gulf is the fact that we had such a long history of centuries of acculturation under Arab and Islamic rule. So from that perspective, I think it's okay to call it Arabic food. Still, within Arab cuisine, there are so many differences, right? Like you cannot possibly compare Moroccan food to Syrian very closely. But the deeper you dig, you also start to realize even within Syrian cuisine, within Palestinian, within Moroccan, even nationalizing it is still very broad because food at the end of the day is regional, right? So even within, and I wrote a piece about this once, um, which is like even in a small place like Palestine, you share a lot of dishes, you share a lot of things, but the cuisine is still largely regional. If you go to the north of the country, you will notice that not only the dishes, but the customs and the traditions around eating them are very different to Gaza, which is much further south and borders Egypt versus the West Bank, which is in the middle and borders Jordan. So it's influenced by climate, it's influenced by socioeconomic status, city versus village. This is where the rice burgos thing comes in, you know, bordering um, countries and whatnot. So it is useful sometimes to have an overarching umbrella, but you also realize that you lose a lot in the process. So I think it's fine when you're first introducing people to something to say, yeah, you know, this is Arab cuisine, this is Chinese, this is Indian. But once you become more familiar with it, you realize there's so much hiding underneath that. Yeah, I I agree with you. There is um, there is perhaps um, a strength that comes from um, the feeling of unity, mm. <laughs> um, but perhaps. It's different when it comes to, and I'm talking about the idea of, you know, national cuisines. Mm -hmm. I generally come from, you know, the school of, you know, viewing it as actually quite dangerous because it homogenizes a lot uh, right. in terms of the diversity, you know, the, the populations that are um, inhabiting a certain geography, um, especially when it comes to you know, the issues of rep representation, right. uh, migrant communities, marginalized communities, contested communities. But then mm -hmm. when it comes to the Palestinian um, <laughs> cause, mm. uh, linking back to what we were talking about at the beginning, right. um, does it, or let's say, how much of a purpose does it offer, does it provide in maintaining and holding on to a Palestinian identity? A lot, I think, you know, and I've said this before, for us, it's not just about the food, right? The food is a proxy for something much bigger. To us, it's, our identity is constantly questioned, right? Like, oh, what is Palestinian? There is no such thing as Palestinian. What is Palestine? It was a land without a people for a people without, you know, all these, uh, this rhetoric that we've been used to hearing all the time. So 
to sit there and try to dissect it and say, you know, I'm from Hebron, I'm from Gaza, I'm from here, I'm from there, that doesn't serve our purpose, which is to say, no, there is a Palestinian cuisine. And yes, it varies from neighborhood to, you know, from location to location, the same way it might between neighbors. But at the end of the day, we're all united in the fact that we are Palestinian, that we have this connection to the land. And even the differences amongst our cuisine, while visible, are marginal, right? Yes, it's different kinds of dishes are used at celebratory event, different kinds of dishes might be considered your like national dish in your specific area. But for Palestinians, food is a way to assert that we exist and always have. It's a way to document our history. Mm-hmm. It's also a way for us to show a sense of unity to the world. You know, it's, and it's also a way to counteract the fact that, you know, someone says, this food is Israeli. Well, but actually it's been around for way longer than Israel has because my great-grandmother used to make it. But so did this other great-grandmother who lived halfway across the country. And what unites us all is that we are Palestinian. Um, how different are the, or what are the key differences in maybe key regions in, mm, in Palestine? Sure. So if you go to the Galilee, for example, which borders Syria and Lebanon, you notice a much heavier reliance on mezze dishes, like smaller plates, dishes like kubiniye, um, dishes that in some places can be eaten, you know, enjoyed with like kara, because you have a bigger Christian population there than you do in some other places. Um, and you see the heavy influence of Syrian and Lebanese cuisine on it. You also, um, if you start to go down more to the West Bank, you see, for example, dishes like mensaf, which are more Bedouin dishes, right? But you have Bedouin communities from Jordan that border the West Bank. Um, if you go more to Gaza, you start to see things like a heavy reliance on chili peppers, on dill, which a lot of them are things that are influenced by Egyptian cuisine, which borders them. But then forget just what borders. Let's say you go to Hebron. There are certain, for example, this is, you know, there's a dessert that is basically just snow topped with um, dip senab, uh, grape molasses. And really, the only reason they have it there nowhere else is because it snows in Hebron, but rarely snows in any other place in Palestine. So it's, you know, it's sometimes it's very small things, like the climate that you have influences what you can grow. That's why there are dishes, um, you know, certain wild herbs that you forage for that you might find in the Galilee that you won't find in Gaza. Yeah. Um, but again, the biggest change, you know, it's a lot of it you start to see it's very... If you want to look at the differences, look at the surrounding areas as well. Like you'll see the galleys similar to Lebanon and Syria, West yeah. Bank to Jordan, Gaza, Egypt, and so on. Um, I, I know the snow cone um, is enjoyed in Lebanon as well in this in the snow. <laughs> Probably, yeah. There you go. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so, and I know perhaps seafood is is. Oh yes, uh, of course, the coast. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And, and also Akka and Haifa, for example, and Yaffa, you'll see a lot more fish dishes in coastal towns than you do in inland towns. Um, also, if you go to Syria, you'll notice a heavy reliance um, on sumat versus lemon because they didn't have lemon trees in specific areas. Mm. So you see these things, right? You know, a lot of it's small details. Sometimes it slips my mind <laughs> when I'm so deep down in like the, the trenches with all the different ones. But here, yeah. those are some... Speaking of being so deep in what you're doing, um, now that you're abroad, um, Mm -hmm. when you go back and visit, do you feel that there are certain things that you might have, you know, overlooked or maybe, you know, didn't notice as a child or growing up? There are a lot of things that you we might have been um, 
let's say, desensitized to, or we're just, mm. we're taken for, taken for granted, but then suddenly you go like, oh, whoa, this is actually amazing. <laughs> so there's a lot of those things. I mean, there's a lot of dishes that I refused to eat growing up. And suddenly when I left, they became like these delicious things, but it's also just, there's a lot about the culture that I took for granted, right? You know, this idea that you saw your extended family every single weekend mm. and that you had dinner together as a, even as a small family every night. And that cooking was such a big part of the culture and that it was so generous, right? Like you didn't have to plan a, a dinner or a get together weeks in advance. Someone could knock on your door and you always had something to serve them. And if an unexpected guest came to dinner, there was more than enough food. And those are things that when I, you know, I've lived in so many different countries at this point, I realize not all cultures have that. For a lot of cultures, it's very, you know, it's counted out. It's very, you know, it's portioned. It's not as generous. It's not as family oriented, et cetera. Yeah. But then I also realized that having lived abroad for so many years now, there's also a lot that I romanticize and that I'm nostalgic for that when I go back has changed now. You know, like all these things I tell you about families being together all the time and people are getting busier back home too. And, you know, a lot of people are becoming more, I don't want to say insular, but it's, it's also possible the last few times I've been back, it's been COVID, but it's not as let's say, social and family oriented, at least in the big cities, as it was historically. In the villages, I still see it where my grandparents live. Um, and my cousins, you still see a lot more of that than you do in the cities, but the cities are becoming more and more and more westernized, which is also sad because it's a kind of loss. Of course, but I mean, it's it's kind of, I, I feel like there is a resistance. There's a wave of, of re I, I think you're right. Uh -huh. right? Yeah, I uh, see it. It's coming back. <laughs> I see it with younger generations. I also see it a lot with people abroad. Like I look at, you know, the, the immigrants here, Arab immigrants, there's a much stronger sense of community. Yeah. And you hold on to these traditions so much. Like I look at my in-laws, they immigrated here, one in the sixties, and they still hold on to traditions that people back home have long since forgotten. And to me, that's good because it's like, you're keeping it alive. Yes. You're not, maybe they're not doing it as much back home, but this stuff is fluid now with people travel and, um, live in different places. I think, like you said, it'll, at least in some parts, it'll come back. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's great. Um, what would be your go-to dish if someone called you up and said, Reem, I'm coming in, let's say half an hour, half hour, what would you cook? Oh my God. Them from in half hour. I mean, so I always have chicken broth in the freezer that I make and I always have meat as well. So I would probably make hashwe or frike just because they're super easy and super quick. Hashua is when you chop these really fine cubes of beef or lamb and you cook them with rice and spices and chicken broth. Um, and do, you, do you use mince in, in the hashua? Or so, yes, you can use mince. Um, actually, most people use mince. It's much easier. I personally prefer the texture when you dice the meat yourself. Um, and when you take it out of the freezer and you dice it when it's half frozen, you can actually control it. So they literally come out like the size of lentils. And it's just, it's the texture is slightly different from using mince. It's um, falfal is the word in Arabic, but it's a lot, you know, it's not clumpy. It's like every grain is separate. Every piece of meat, it's very good. Yeah. So I would do that with salad and something or frike with. Yeah. Um, falfal would be perhaps, I don't know, fluffy. I mean, how does fluffy it work translation of some of these words? Some uh, things just don't have translation. Like right? zanakha doesn't have translation. Falfal doesn't. I tried to write a whole article on the meaning of nafas. I don't know if it came across, but yeah. 
Yes, it's uh, it's hard to um, hard to catch, hard to some stuff. Yeah, which just shows you how rich the culture is, right? Like absolutely. there is just yeah, mm. it's um, yeah, it's it's absolutely um, it's different and it's and it's rich and it's just it pays attention to different things. It values different right. things that exactly might go mm-hmm. you know un, unnoticed. Um, yes. <laughs> We asked you to pick one ingredient, uh, a single dish or a single, you know, uh, item to um, talk to us about. So you picked kakelots. So I think it's interesting, right? Kakelots, like it's the one dish that's so synonymous with that one place. And I guess one of the reasons I wanted to talk about it is it's suddenly becoming so popularized in the West and people are calling it Jerusalem sesame bagels, right? And that always bothered me. Like, why are you calling it sesame bagel? It's, you know, it's kak and it's from Jerusalem and whatnot. But calling it a bagel almost implies that it's not Palestinian. But then while researching my second book, I was looking through a 13th century Syrian cookbook. It's translated to English as scents and flavors. In Arabic, it's called Kitab al-Wusla ila al-Habib. And there's an entire chapter on it on baked breads. And in that chapter is a section on something called kaik. And they even say kaik is such, and I think they were referring in part to, you know, kaik that's smaller and more crispy as opposed to specifically this um, particular kaik, but they're all related. And anyway, they say kaik is so popular that we don't even need to put recipes for it in this book, but we are going to include a few recipes for ones that are slightly different. One of them was a variety called mfakhar, I think, um, which is put on a dowel. It is boiled and then it is baked. Uh-huh. And that is basically how the bagel is cooked. So I wrote a piece for Serious Eats about the potential Arab origins of the bagel. And if you start to look at the trade routes, you know, where the Islamic Empire trade routes stretched, you start to realize that there are these bagels and all kinds of places you wouldn't expect to find them. Like if you go to the Uyghur people in China, they have something called Gurdanan, which looks exactly like a bagel mm-hmm. um and you know if you, poland which is where a lot of you know jews trace the bagel to yeah. the polish family actually had something that was identical called an ubroznik which was brought there from an italian princess who married into the royal family in poland and she came from bari in italy and bari in italy was the strongest foothold for the arab empire in the mediterranean so you start to see like the dots start to connect about how it is very you know it's is it bulletproof no but it is very possible that the arab guy was the precursor to the bagel and to um the skakil and so i wanted to discuss this just because it's a very unheard of history and it's also a very distinct product that even palestinians tell you like they make it in other places they make it in safad and akka and haifa etc but everyone says skakil is just different and nobody knows why, right? Is it, again, is it something psychological or is there really something to do with the, I don't know, the ovens, the the yeast that's in the walls, right? Like when I wrote this article about Nefes, I spoke to some scientist who said, if you make sourdough in a lab versus a kitchen, it even in an identical process, it actually tastes different because mm-hmm. of what microbiomes exist in different oh, places. Yeah. So, or, or on your own hands. On your hands, exactly. Yeah. 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 So what? Yeah. Um, you know, I was looking up um, the etymology of Samit, the Turkish uh-huh. 
a bagel. And I was amazed to find that the word, the Arabic word, samata, seen, mm-hmm. means to dip in water or to dip something. Yep. And it makes perfect sense that that's how, that's the technique in making samit or, or, or certain bagels is to dip them in boiled water before they, they get baked. Exactly. And here's another surprise, which was also a surprise for me about Turkish cuisine. A lot of people will say, oh, you know, you talk about appropriation. Well, look how much you took from the Ottomans. But actually, the very, very first Turkish cookbook that was published in the 15th century was just a translation of a 12th century Arabic cookbook, also called Kitab al-Tabir. So they literally took that book, translated it, added a couple recipes, and that became the first Turkish cookbook. So their cuisine actually relied on Arabic cuisine. And this is where you see, like I said, you know, fusion is the history of food in general. And there's nothing wrong with learning from other cultures, with adopting, but it is important to give credit where it's due, or at the very least, not try to erase the existence and history of the cultures that came before you and enriched your own. Yeah, and I guess this is what the whole idea of cultural appropriation being anti-cultural appropriation is. It's like, yeah. you want to enjoy the food, great, amazing. But... but you enjoy it, you know, come back for more. Our doors are always open, but... But acknowledge where you got it from, exactly. Yeah, absolutely. Um, all right, I'm going to jump on to a quick Q&A. Um, what are you reading or watching right now? Oh, goodness. Um, I'm watching. This is bad. It's, I'm binge watching a, a very old show. It's called Scandal. I, I don't I, know. <laughs> yeah, it's like <laughs> it's a Shonda Rhimes show, actually. So I, you know, I watched Bridgerton. I watched all these silly things. I was very into Korean shows for a while, like Crash Landing on You and really? all these. Again, I do a lot of like serious work and depressing work. So sometimes when I want to watch a read, I'm like, I want something light and easy. So this is a very silly political show that I'm watching. It's called Scandal. What am I reading? Um, hold on, I will tell you. I'm reading, I read a bunch of different books all at the same time. So I'm reading a book called The Expectation Effect. Um, I'm also rereading Pachinko. I've read it already once, but I love it. And then I have a bunch of cookbooks. Pachinko, the Korean book? Yeah. Korean? Oh, I'm watching the series. I didn't know it was a book. Oh, so it's a book. Um, and she, the author, was actually working on the series, and then uh, to because of some creative disputes, she left it. I started watching the series, could not finish. I didn't like it. Um, I didn't because finish. I had read the book. So the book and is so. Better. Oh, the book is way better. Oh yeah, I'm reading it for a second time. That's how much I like it. The story is amazing, though. The story is so good, but the woman from you know over generations is just yeah. It really reminded me of Palestinians in many ways. That might be one of the reasons I loved it so much, but I think the show takes a lot of creative liberties that don't do the story as much justice as it should. Yeah. But um, I'll finish it if you say it's good. So I I'm I will let you know. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm still like in episode three, so <laughs> I'll let you know. Um who would you shadow for a day, Dean? Oh God, can we come back to that one? I have yeah. to think about this. Who would I love to shadow for a day? Past okay, or present. Let's do then. Let's do the next. And I'll one. keep thinking. Okay. <laughs> Guilty midnight food choice. Oh, there's so many of those. Okay. Um, so if you want to laugh, like normally, because I go for something easy, there's a snack called bamba, which is it's actually an, I guess it's an Israeli snack. It's very bad. Um, it's peanut butter based. 
Bamba, B-A-M-B-A. Oh, I don't know. Anyway, so again, but it's actually Palestinians make it too. So I grew up eating it. So at midnight, because I don't want to cook or I don't want to do anything, I'll go downstairs and have a bag of bamba with fruits. Is I eat the fruits to feel less. It's like, it's almost like cheese puffs, but peanut butter flavored. Oh, oh, interesting. It's the first yeah. thing about it. Really? And it's yeah, really, so where, where would you find it? Like I it, buy it at Trader Joe's. Um, okay, interesting. Bumble. In the U.S. at Trader Joe's. Um, I, growing up, I used to buy it at any, like, you know, Arabic supermarkets. There was a, it used to come in different flavors. It's essentially a corn puff flavored with something, you know, cheese or whatnot. But anything like that, any kind of corn puff, cheese puff, whatever, with some fruits. Okay. I feel like the fruit counter acts the unhealthy benefits right. of that and then well, asian dumplings are always a guilty pleasure no matter what time of day i love <laughs> things um okay what dish uh, reminds you most of home <laughs> probably stuffed chicken just because it was always my favorite dish growing up it's what my mother makes when i go home so it's, yeah. is it the one in um in your book is the one that you- it is Yes. Oh, yeah. with that exact recipe? It is, yeah. Although now I've taken to deboning the chicken. I don't recommend doing that. It's a very complicated process, but um, it allows you to stuff it with even more rice and eat it more easily. What? Unless the butcher can do it. Yeah, except you need them. To, so an alternative, which is what I've taken to doing now because it's so much easier and quicker, is I only debone the legs or the thighs, and then I stuff those. And then you get the best of both worlds. It's easier to debone it. You don't have to sit there and sew it. My husband says you should go into plastic surgery while you're sewing these chickens. <laughs> yeah, no, not too um, late to start a, another career. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> How many careers can you fit in a lifetime? <laughs> right? I, I think the medicine one is out the window now, but yeah. <laughs> um. All right. I mean, if you do remember who you want to show shadow for a day, let me know. But in the I meantime, mean, I don't know. Just thinking about this now, like I feel almost I wouldn't have thought of this before. But given the what we're living through right now, I would actually have wanted to shadow Shirin Abu Akhlet just because I grew up listening to her voice right all the time. We actually grew up on the same street. Um, okay. Yeah, we didn't know each other personally just because of the age difference, but we were literally like five, six houses apart. Um, yeah. But it's interesting because, you know, the work she does, obviously, as now he sees, was very dangerous. But it was also a way of sharing people's stories with the world in a different medium on a different topic. That's, um, I just saw a video of her cooking. I don't know. Oh, did you? I have not seen it. (laughs) No, if you could share it, I would love to. Made um, uh, mahashim zawarat, she called it. Oh, really? Uh, Stuffed vine leaves and uh, a bunch of other things and... Uh, she was just t- saying she never it's like the, the uh, I think she said it's like the first time she made it that good that's so funny um Haram, yeah yeah, yeah so if like, you actually if you email me I'd love to see it of, of course yeah of course um all right what do you say we open up the floor for any questions Absolutely. um in the chat from Miranda, Miranda Al-Khazan, she's saying, assuming ingredients matter, is it hard to find ingredients which come from Palestine? Does it sadden you that these aren't represented more in the stores? So I assume the question is referring to the USA. Um, ingredients absolutely matter. Yes, they do. And um, is it hard to find ingredients which come from Palestine? Yes, definitely. 
but there has been more, like there's a lot of cooperatives now that do try to source things from Palestinian farmers. I see it in the UK as well. You know, mm-hmm. things it's simple things, right? Like zayt, zaatar, olives, cheese, sometimes. Um, and does it? You know, it saddens me that these you cannot find them as much in stores here. On the other hand, though, it it's also a good thing. Because if you think about it, like think of what the popularity of quinoa did to the people of Peru, like these things that are your staples, when there becomes such huge demand for them abroad and you start outsourcing them there, suddenly they become so much more expensive and inaccessible for the local people who have relied on them for centuries. So I actually, I think it's okay that we have to find alternatives here. I grow my own zakat outside. I make my own cheese. Um, Sometimes I'll buy olive oil that's not Palestinian, although most of the time my parents send me olive oil that they make. But I think it's okay sometimes to not have everything available everywhere in the world. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Another question is, can you recommend some great food history books, Arab world related or otherwise? Yes. So I'm just going to open up my books here. So I used Kitab al-Tabikh, which I referenced a lot, is I used a translation for it as well by um, Nawal Nasrallah. It's called Annals of the Caliph's Kitchen. Right. So that one was good. Um, There were a few books actually that there is a researcher called Charles Perry. Um, He writes a lot about the Arab world, Middle East. And, you know, if you look him up, you will see different chapters for him. Sorry. He has the scents and flavors. So he translated that one. That's the 13th century book that I was telling you the bagel thing was in. So that one's his. Um, There's, I'm looking through my list. So hold on. I mean, obviously I used the Cambridge World History of Food and whatnot. There's one called Food and World History, but these are all very broad, right? Like you're going to have to dig into the chapters that are relevant to you. Um, there's Medieval Cuisine of the Islamic World. There's the Culinary Crescent um, by Peter Hein. Um, there's a lot of good ones. I mean, I'm happy to send you a list if people want it. Like I Also, if you have my book, The Arabesque Table, there's actually an entire bibliography at the end. Yeah, that's mm. great. In fact, we have um, another Matbakh talk tomorrow with uh, the writer translator of a 15th century Egyptian cookbook. Uh, oh, the one that just, piece, I saw that just come out. Daniel mm. Newman, yes. Um, so anyone who's uh, interested and we'd love to tune in, we'd love to have you tomorrow also to continue the chat on, uh, on, on <laughs> some of what we touched on today about food history in the region. Um, okay, I've got another question on what is one utensil you can cannot work without. This is from me. I'd say Mira. It's a toss-up between my lemon squeezer and my really sharp chef's knife. <laughs> I use both equally. There's so much lemon in our food, so constantly the lemon squeezer, but you can't do anything without a good knife. And actually good kitchen shears, scissors. Yeah. Awesome. Um, if anyone would like to unmute themselves and um, uh, just go in with a question, please feel free. Um, Lemia is saying, please, it would be great to send us a list of the cookbooks. And we've got a question from Zainden Hanbali. What is your opinion about people who put knafe aside <laughs> of pita, inside of pita bread? <laughs> so I think most of these, I mean, I've only seen it in Lebanese restaurants, right? Um, I don't particularly like it that way. To me, knafe is just, it's, you already have that salty, crunchy bit from the, you know, the cheese has a bit of salt in it. The pastry is so crunchy that I think it doesn't need anything. It's perfect as is. 
On the other hand, I do come from like a triple carb culture where I eat my kaftoda zubatata with bread. So I'm not one to judge someone for putting anything inside a pita bread. <laughs> Amazing. Um, okay, so we've got a question from Sally that I'm scrolling up to. Oh yeah, what's your favorite Palestinian dessert? Oh, I actually, I do like knafe very much. And I think that one you can actually say is Palestinian. Um, tabba also is very, very good. Um, what yeah, is those two. And so it's this really thin dough. It's you know it's cooked on the spot, right? But I guess it's you could say it's similar to phyllo pastry, and it's stuffed with either cheese or walnuts, and it's folded in tabba because it's being folded, um, and then it's doused with sugar syrup once it's cooked. Oh, so it, it, does it get fried? No, it gets baked. Okay, because I was thinking tamriya. In my head. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's slightly different, different, but yeah. 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 Awesome. I love so They're all very similar. The concept is very similar, right? This thin dough that's stuffed with something that's either yeah. baked or fried and then soaked in syrup. They yeah. exist yeah. all over the Arab world. Um, we've got a question from Adam saying, most cooks love to cook alone and show off their abilities. You as an individual, do you like cook- uh, Do you like people giving you a hand or does that annoy you? <laughs> <laughs> love the question. So I don't know. I mean... To me, it's never about, you know, showing off my ability. Obviously, I know how to cook. The people who know me know that I know how to cook. But I'm just, I'm very particular in how I work in the kitchen. I, it's like very methodical, very clean, right? I work and I clean as I go along. And and so I, I do love help if someone wants to chop something for me. But what I can't have is someone hovering around me while I'm cooking, giving me, oh, why are you doing it like this? No, you need to do that. It's like, no, God, please. Like, no, just, and this particularly happens, right? With like the older women in my family. Um, yeah, <laughs> if you have, if you have people over and you're cooking for them, you know, sure you do the cooking before anyone comes I in. prep as much as I can beforehand because it's like, you know, there are people that are set on a certain way of doing things. Right. But then it's like you, I do a lot of research and I experiment and whatnot. So sometimes it's like this feeling of having to justify everything that yeah. gets on my nerves, but I love having people around. That's never an issue for me. Or the question of how can I help? Reem, give me something to do. And I'm like, I like just talk to me, but I, you know, yeah, it'll take me more time to explain to you than to do it myself. Exactly, exactly that. Um, okay, what cuisine would you like other? Oh, that's super easy. Than the Palestinian or Arabic one? I'm obsessed with, I alternate between Indian cuisine. That's just, yeah, that's the one most probably. And da, da, da. so Lamia is asking, I still didn't buy the Arabesque table. What Arabic cuisines do you cover in it? So it's not divided by geography, right? So it's not like I cover all the different parts of the Arab world. I It's split up by ingredient. And the reason I do that is it's easier to trace the history by tracing the, the ingredients themselves and how they've traveled and come along. There are dishes that are, you know, inspired from North Africa, from Sudan, from obviously the Levant is the bulk of it just mm-hmm. because that happens to be you know what I know and research the most um some things from the Gulf not as much but yeah I mean I would say it's it's also it if you're buying it thinking you're gonna get like this historic thing about traditional Arabic dishes you get the information but the recipes a lot of them are much more uh, dishes that are adapted to today's kitchen and today's cooking Okay, um, a, a quite close question. What cuisine is the most similar to Palestinian cuisine? 
so all the cuisines of the Levant are very similar. And if you think about it, we were all really just the same area, uh, especially under Ottoman rule and even going further back than that. There was no major separation between Lebanon, Syria, Jordan, Palestine, right? Like my great grandmother is actually from Syria. And I think anyone you speak to has someone from their family who's from one of those places or the other. So all those cuisines are the same or yeah. similar. More or less. All right. Well, um, that wrapped up our questions. And um, I'm so, so happy that we've done this tonight and had the chance. Me to too. This was fun. Chat. Um, thank you, everyone, for joining us. Um, this is Reem's uh, Instagram, I suppose. Uh, yes. Yes. Please, if you want to follow, please do. Um, and stay in touch. This is also Afikra's link um, to give us feedback. We'd love to hear from you. And uh, of course, any any way that you can support our community would be much appreciated. Um, thank you so much, Reem, once again, and everyone. Thank for you. Tonight. Thank you. This was so fun. And thank you guys all for tuning in. Thank you, Reem. Have a great night. You Thanks, too. Everybody. Bye. Hey, I hope you enjoyed that episode. If you'd like to learn more about what we do, go to hafikita.com where you can learn about our Zoom events, our live events in 30 different chapters around the world, our social media presence, and our podcasts and YouTube stuff. You should know that everything we do is all towards a mission of converting passive interest in the histories and cultures of the Arab world into an active intellectual curiosity. By listening to this, you're a part of that movement, so thank you for being here. If you'd like to support our work, go to afikra.com support and join the hundreds of people around the world who make this work possible. Thanks.